Come on, can we do something real quick? If you stood at any point in that video, could you stand one more time? Can we give it up for the people that have served here at City Life Suffolk? Come on, we can't thank you guys enough. Everything Jamie said in that video about being honored to worship with you guys is true. You guys can be seated, but we hope you feel loved. We hope you feel appreciated. We hope you feel honored tonight. And uh, while we're honoring and recognizing folks, can we just thank Randy in the back? Randy, can you give a wave? He helped lead worship tonight. Come on, he did an amazing, phenomenal job. And, and again, we'll get a little bit more later, but my wife, Steph, she's still re recovering from thyroid surgery. So that is a huge boost, a huge blessing to our campus. So if you see him on your way out, shake his hand, tell him thank you. Um, but yeah, it's good to be back. We had a couple weekends where we kind of flipped the script. We did Oktoberfest two weeks ago. Uh, we did, uh, we watched Racial Taboo last week, the documentary, and then we had discussion. We went all the way to 7 p.m. last week, just talking about it. And uh some of y'all were getting a little hangry, so we broke at seven. But, um, but no, I remember some people were like, man, I wish that discussion could have gone even longer because it was meaningful and it was powerful. And uh, I just want to encourage you guys, that was, that was just the icebreaker. We didn't do that so we could uh, ease our conscience and pat ourselves on the back. Really, I mean, I went to Zion Community Sunday morning. I mean, with Pastor Ben on Wednesday to talk about, man, what can we continue to do, not just on weekends, but in terms of ministry together to keep that conversation going. So do keep that conversation going. Um, because we got to lean in to that conversation. Reconciliation, it takes a lifestyle, an intentional lifestyle of reconciliation. We're not going to come to some easy, uh, spontaneous solution to that. And it's needed this week as much as ever, because we just uh, went through a week that was very defined by race and politics. And we live in a nation that, that it lives in the, the politics of polarization, countless lines in the sand in race, in politics, and in many other areas where we delineate between us and them. Us and them. And two of the greatest divides we see in our culture are, are race and politics. So that's why we're in this series. And it's in that climate that we go to our word tonight. And it's funny. Uh, I prayed a lot about this sermon tonight because it's, it's a tender subject to all of us. And uh, just confirm, God confirming it. Because Steph came up, maybe she heard me preaching to the walls at home before service, but Romans 12 is where we're turning tonight. Romans 12, we're going to read here verses 1 through 2, and then verses 9 through 18. She read it from the message. We're about to get the New Living Translation. But Romans 12, verses 1 through 10, excuse me, verses 1 through 2, and then 9 through 18. It says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And then moving to verse 9, it says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. 
Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all you can to live in peace with everyone. Come on, do all you can to live in peace with everyone. Come on, before we go even further tonight, can we just pray together? Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that week to week, no matter what happens in the world, in our country, in our culture, it stays the same. It never changes, and it's just as relevant today as it was last week. It's just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Lord God, and we thank you that you've reigned and ruled over nations. Uh, Kings have come and gone. Leaders have come and gone. But through all of that, there's a steady pursuit, God, where you pursue hearts and lives. And God, we, we say tonight, God, we open up our heart to receive from your word. God, as we draw near to you, we pray that you would draw close to us, God, and just plant the seed of your word in a way that it would bear much fruit as we leave tonight. And everybody said, amen. So who in here would define yourself as a a creature of habit? Like the first 30 minutes of your day always look the same. Last 30 minutes of your day always look the same. Your lunch break for that hour always looks the same. I am. Steph will tell you I'm a creature of habit. And even week to week, like Wednesday mornings, I like to finish my sermon and and wrap it up. One, so I can have all my attention for all the admin I've got to do during the week. But then also on Friday, I like to come back just with a fresh uh, perspective. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that's great. Sometimes I'm like, oh, this needs a lot of work. But I like to finish my sermon Wednesday morning. But this Wednesday morning wasn't like a lot of other Wednesday mornings because we were coming right out of the election. And if we're honest, the the election process, at least for me, it it was kind of exhausting. You know, I talked to many a person who became frustrated and exhausted during that process, but no, none of us said, oh, well, we're going to give up on politics. Because politics matter, because politics create policies, and policies affect people, and people matter. You know, it, it, but don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that we place all our hope in politics. Slowly, I think, we saw this as a nation. First, the fact that polls and, and asking our collective uh, confidence, asking people how how confident were they in the candidates. It wasn't very high, this go-round. And second, I remember on election eve, right, I'm watching the news, the evening news, um, and there was a segment where they were talking about the stress due to the election, to the point where people's health was suffering. So they had the American Psychiatric Association come up with four points that people could, things that they could do to help ease their stress in the election season. How many of you guys know that's a coping mechanism for people in an unsure time with no true foundation for their hope? Yet as believers, we walk in a peace and a hope that surpasses understanding, that surpasses any election season. Because of the truth we see in a verse like Psalm 47, verse 8. Psalm 47, verse 8 reads specifically that God reigns above the nations sitting on his holy throne. So even in an unsure time in our culture, our hope is sure because God's throne isn't up for election every four years. He's not up, uh, he's not uh, restricted to a certain number of terms. He's not restricted by checks and balances. He reigns, he rules, and he does it sovereignly, and he does it perfectly. And he's the, the king of kings, he's the lord of lords, he's the leader over leaders, over every government. It says the government rests on his shoulders, and he's the same yesterday, last week, today, and forever. So we have a hope. But, you know, in light of that verse, I've seen it used in, in a few different ways since the election. You know, the first is, a, is that powerful reminder that no matter what happens in life, no matter what happens in life week to week, that God is on the throne. And in every season, 
we can praise him because he is on the throne. But, you know, I've also seen where it's used as a reply, almost as a, a shrug of the shoulders to people who really are grieving, have reason to grieve, things that God is grieving about from, from injustice to racism to whatever it may be. I've seen it as a reply where it's like, well, God is on the throne. You know, but we can't check out. We've got to lean in. Again, like we're talking about with the discussion we had last week, there's work to be done. And just because God is on the throne, right, that should spark praise in every season. It should. But it also shouldn't spark passivity. The, him sitting on the throne, it doesn't give us permission to write off the cries of our brothers and sisters because that feeds division. We're going to talk about division tonight. But even we just read in Romans 12, verses 12 through 13, it talks about living in harmony. But then it says this, rejoice in our confident hope. We've got hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. And when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Saying, yes, God is on his throne. We have not just a hope, but a confident hope. But we have work to do. And we're surrounded by needs, so be ready to help. But, you know, before you run to help how you think is needed, it's so important in this season to listen. So often when we think, oh, I'm going to help, it looks a lot more like lecturing than it does like listening. And James 1.19 is so relevant in this season. We need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. And as you listen, you'll find that there are brothers and sisters of the faith dealing with legitimate concerns. But you may also hear from people where it just seems like fear is taking over, where hope has gone out the window because they don't live with that reality. Hey, God, God's still on the throne. He's still on the throne. You know, as citizens of the United States, through this whole process, you might not chalk it up as an overwhelming victory, but as children of the kingdom, children of God, you definitely don't chalk it up as a loss. Because, you know, none of the truths, again, from last week have changed. (laughs) The word of God hasn't changed. God's promises haven't changed. God's plans and purposes, they haven't been hindered. His call for the church hasn't changed. And he's still on the throne. And we have a call to be in the world as light, as peacemakers, and as vehicles of reconciliation. Those are three clear calls that we see in the Bible for the church. And we knew on Tuesday that come Wednesday morning, half of the country was going to wake up uneasy. Half of the country was going to wake up maybe a little numbed, including, including many of the brothers and sisters we share pews with, people that we worship with. And if you don't understand why, now is a good time to be slow to speak, quick to listen, quick to ask questions, because fear has a hold of our culture and is bred division. And, you know, uh, only a unified church is going to be able to have an impact on a divided culture. A divided church is going to have little to no impact on a divided culture. And the church is called, I want to look at tonight briefly before we go back into worship, because we are going to praise due to the fact that God is still on the throne. We're going to remember that as we move forward. But I want to talk about two callings that we have. The first is to meet fear with hope. To meet fear with hope. The second is to meet division with unity. Fear with hope, division with unity. Because, again, us versus them, it's the, it's the call of our culture. It's, it's part of our culture. It's, it's in our culture. But it can't be. It can't be. It can't be the culture in the church if we say we worship Jesus Christ, who lived me for them, and then gave the church this calling of us for them. But let's start with fear. 
We started this series a few weeks ago with this analogy from World War I, that us versus them battle that was so significant in the 20th century. And the trench warfare and this, this analogy of the fact that we're called to cross this spiritual no man's land and all these lines drawn in the sand by our culture to love on those that are different from us. The them that our culture would call them. And then we talked about how on Christmas of 1914, when they were celebrating the coming of Jesus, that there was this ceasefire in the trenches. They played soccer with each other. They smoked cigars with each other in this cratered earth that was called no man's land. And it's this beautiful picture, this beautiful picture of Jesus bridging the gap. And then we also mentioned briefly how historically at the end of World War I, the Treaty of Versailles was so punitive and so punishing that it almost provided this fertile soil of hopelessness and despair that the Nazi regime rose out of. I'll tell you all this because it was in that culture on January 15th, 1933, between world wars that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he preached a sermon called Overcoming Fear. You know, from the defeat Germany suffered in World War I, a little over a decade previous, to the stock market crash that displaced six million people from their jobs, to the rising threat of communism and extremism, the German population seemingly had reason to fear from every direction. And it's in this setting that Bonhoeffer spoke the following words. He gives this analogy. He says, let's say there is a ship on the high sea having a fierce struggle with the waves. The storm wind is blowing harder by the minute. The boat is small, tossed about like a toy. The sky is dark. The sailor's strength is failing. Then one of them is gripped by whom, what, he can't tell himself. But someone is there in the boat who wasn't there before. Suddenly he can no longer see or hear anything, can no longer row. A wave overwhelms him, and in final desperation he shrieks, Stranger in this boat, who are you? And the other answers, I am fear. All hope is lost. Fear is in the boat. And he went on to say, fear is in the boat in Germany, in our own lives, and in the nave of this church. Naked fear of an hour from now, of tomorrow, and the day after. He was addressing people who had legitimate concerns. But those concerns had graduated to faith-crippling, hope-stealing fear. And if we're honest, there are legitimate concerns that we live with here in the nave of this church right now. But the lesson to learn from this story is that millions of these Germans allowed fear to rob them of their hope in God, to where they placed their hope in a political figure, one that drove them from love of neighbor and into war. And we need to remind people in our culture, seemingly crippled by fear, of who also was in the boat. Where you read Luke chapter 8, who else was in the boat? Jesus, who with a word could calm a storm. This doesn't mean that as believers we trivialize our legitimate fears. But what it does mean is I don't let my concerns take my faith. I take my concerns to Jesus. I don't let my fears rob me of my faith. I take my fears to Jesus. who He promised trouble. You know, in Luke chapter 8, he says, let's go to the other side of this lake knowing full well there was going to be a storm, right? A little warning would have been nice, right? But he calls them to it. But he says, hey, you'll have trouble, but I've overcome the world. Man, read Lamentations. It's not advice you want on a Saturday night, right? Like, Please, any other book. I was working through my uh, reading plan, and I, I got to Lamentations. I'm like, I got to read this with my coffee? Couldn't I read a psalm or, you know, like, give me one of the epistles? But no, Lamentations. They had so much reason to fear and mourn. Conquered, exiled, it seemed like God had forsaken them. Yet in Lamentations, in the same chapter, in the same chapter, 
where it says we're filled with fear, it says, yet I still dare to hope. Why? How? Because in the the very last verses of Lamentations, it says your throne continues from generation to generation. You know, when fear comes, we can't let it take our hope because nothing can take God off the throne. Nothing. And in a world that doesn't know Jesus, doesn't have a solution to their fear, doesn't have a foundation to hope from, we have to share the hope we have more than ever. We have to meet fear with hope. Because fear that is untreated, it breeds division. How many of you guys remember the term amygdala from last week? You remember what that meant in racial taboo and, and, and what it, how it related to our conversation? Who remembers what the amygdala was? Thank you, Wayne. Sorry, I didn't see your hand. Right. Yeah, now you got it. Now you got it. That's all right. That's all right. It's the part in the brain where when you see something that you don't recognize, that is foreign to you, fear arises. That was, that was pretty critical to our survival as a human race for, right, centuries. But we see its work in racism and we see its work in all the us versus them in our society today. And the solution is to make what's unfamiliar familiar. And that was the lesson that they were talking about in that video. But come on, since last week and in the many weeks of the election, how many of you guys have seen this on maybe your Facebook wall or your, uh, your feed on social media? It's Dear Mr. Wormwood, right? It's from Screwtape Letters. I'll read it real quick. It says, My dear Wormwood, be sure that the patient remains completely fixated on politics. Arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people they have never met serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things the patient can control. Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst, frustration, and general disdain towards the rest of the human race in order to avoid any kind of charity or inner peace from further developing. Ensure the patient continues to believe that the problem is out there in the broken system rather than recognizing there's a problem with it himself. Keep up the good work, Uncle Screwtape, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, 1942. How many of y'all saw that over the past few weeks? Share it on the internet. Here's the rub. It's not from Screwtape Letters. <laughs> it's not. Somebody wrote it and they attributed it to Screwtape Letters, but I was like, there's typos in there. C.S. Lewis is better than that, right? And C.S. Lewis already addressed it in the book And he did it so well that I'm going to read from it. But this is from the legit screw tape letters. He says, looking around, looking around your patient's new friends, I find that the best point of attack would be the borderline between theology and politics. Now, pause before we go any further. Screw tape letters, if you've never heard of it, it's it's two demons speaking to each other. So the enemy here is God. And this is them strategizing. Sorry, some of y'all might be confused if I don't say that. But looking around your patient's new friends, I find that the best point of attack would be the borderline between theology and politics. Several of his new friends are very much alive to the social implications of their religion. That in itself is a bad thing, but good can be made out of it. So inveterate is their appetite for heaven that our best method at this stage of attaching them to earth is to make them believe that earth can be turned into heaven at some future date by politics. You know, there's a quote that echoes this. He's the former chaplain of Duke, and he said, the average American knows no answer to human longing or moral deviation other than legislation. And often it seems like this is a crutch within the church where we want legislation to do the work of evangelism for us. Or somehow, maybe even more erroneously, that legislation can do the work of heart transformation that only God and his grace can do. 
But you see, legislation works from the outside in, and it never truly works. But God works from the inside out. And the kingdom of God is not going to it's not going to progress through politics and power plays. The kingdom of God will progress through grace and compassion. Compassion. You know, my, my uh, bridal party of groomsmen, that's the way you say it, right? It was my bridal party, but it was a bunch of men. Sounds feminine, but that's how you say it, right? My bridal party of groomsmen. Shout out to Nate. I think he's the only person here that was in there. But it was made up of men of all different races. And it was made up of, I know because I've talked to him this week, men that voted all kinds of different directions. There were men that voted for Donald Trump in that group. There were men that voted for Hillary Clinton in that group. There were men that voted for Evan McMullen in that group. So these are men who voted for Donald Trump, who I've cried with, laughed with, and they've carried me through life. These are men that voted for Hillary Clinton, that have laughed with me, cried with me, and they've carried me through life. These are men that voted for Evan McMullen, that have laughed with me, cried with me, and carried me through life. These are men of conviction that walked me through my life. And these are the men that walked me to my bride. And you know, Jesus is gonna come back for his bride, the unified church, and in that group, he's gonna come back for people that voted Democratic, people that voted Republican, people that voted third party, because God's the ultimate independent. (laughs) He's gonna come back for all of them. He's not gonna come back on the back of an elephant or a donkey in a suit or tie says in Revelation, he's going to come back on a white horse with a tattoo on his thigh, right? Team's had it. He's on that team. You didn't know. <laughs> Some of y'all are shaking your head and rolling your eyes. It's a joke. It's, it's all right. We can do that here. But I still talk to these men because they're a part of my circle. Because we realize that the most important developments in life, they happen in the four years between elections. And the progress that we need to see as a church is going to happen in the four years between elections. We've got work to do. You know, these men voted many different ways. And, and newsflash, people in here voted many different ways. And if you look at the election results and the numbers and you ask, well, how could they vote that way? Or, or how could they think in that way? Why are they happy if we look at Romans 12? Or why are they weeping? we got to realize in, in Romans 12 that God doesn't ask you to judge whether they should be weeping. God doesn't ask you to judge whether they should be happy. He simply says, be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other and don't think you know it all. You know, it's hard to live in harmony and unity in those moments when we think we know it all. When in reality, we have no idea what they are walking through. So buy them a coffee. Make a friend. <laughs> Cross that worldly, fleshly line of us versus them. And you'll find a grace and love for them that breeds unity and not division. Man, take this home with you if you take nothing else home with you. Compassion is not somehow contingent on us feeling whether another person is correct. Compassion shouldn't be contingent on whether we think somebody is correct in feeling what they're feeling. It simply requires us to care about what they're feeling. The Bible doesn't say we'll be known for our political correctness. It says we'll be known for our love, our compassion. You know, every relationship with another brother or sister that has a different life experience is an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to step out of our sinful tendency to just judge everything from our filter of our one life experience and live from a deeper perspective and a broader lens. That breeds empathy, and empathy breeds unity. You know, if you distance yourself from brothers, who sis- brothers and sisters who think differently than you, you're doing yourself a disservice. 
You know, and if, if your circle lacks the, the diversity of different thoughts and different experiences and different perspectives, you're going to be pretty surprised when you get to see the circle of worshipers in heaven. Come on, every tribe, black and white, every voting demographic, red and blue, unified in worship to God. We live in the United States of America, but these are times when it seems like it's united in name only because there's so much division. Again, on the news, just watching it this week, there's so many questions. How does the nation unify after such a divisive election? If I had $5 for every time they said that we're divided, uh, we'd probably be able to pay for the rest of the adoption, right? We'd pay that right off right now. And after every president is elected, every four years, we hear, can the new president unify a divided nation? He won't because he can't. God never calls on the executive branch to bring unity through government power. God calls upon his church to bring unity to a divided world through grace, compassion, and the blood of Jesus Christ. And if we've been waiting for a branch of the government to do the work of reconciliation for us, then shame on us. Right, the, the work of reconciliation and social justice and caring for the widow and caring for the orphan and caring for the oppressed and caring for those that are downtrodden. Jesus didn't pass that baton to the Roman government. He didn't pass that baton to Jewish leaders. He passed that baton to the church. It's the same baton we need to carry. You know, there's a great Hillsong United song called Solution. It's old because we're getting old. But it, it said, politics will not decide if we should rise to be your hands and feet. I love that line in this season, that politics will not decide if we should rise to be your hands and feet. It goes on to say, we will be your hands, we will be your feet, we will run this race for the least of these. You know, the, the race for the White House is over, but our race is just beginning. The race for the Oval Office, it's a wrap for 2016, but our, our race as a church for 2016 and beyond, it's just beginning. You know, there have been almost 50 races for the White House. Oh, hundreds of platforms that these politicians had that they stood on, and none of them crippled the church. And on the other side of the coin, none of them crowned Christendom. Should we be concerned about who sits in the Oval Office? Absolutely. Again, we should care about politics, but it shouldn't fuel fear. It should fuel prayers. Because ultimately, who's sitting in the Oval Office, it isn't what fuels our race. It's who's sitting on the throne. You know, Hebrews 12 of the message version, we were in Romans 12. This is Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 says, strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Well, that's Hebrews 12 in the message version. You know, our race remains. And our race carries the same weight after the election as it did during the election. We'll run the race well only if we do three things as we, well, maybe more than three things. These are three things I want to hit on as we go into the next week and beyond. The first is simply come out of your trenches. <laughs> Again, our culture is so defined by us versus them. And if you've spent the past month spending so much time digging in your heels that you're waist deep in the mud, when God calls you forward, you're not even going to be able to walk. Let's get to walking with God again and following Jesus. I, I reread a book, All Quiet on the Western Front, recently. 
It's an incredible work of fiction written by somebody who himself survived the trenches and the horrors of World War I. And there's this chapter where he's talking about the prisoners of war that are being held in the same camp that he was in. And these words are powerful, like so many other words in the book, but, but this is just a passage from it. He's speaking of those prisoners on the other side of this fence that just days ago had been shooting and trying to kill him. He says, I know nothing of them except that they are prisoners. And that is exactly what troubles me. Their life is obscure and guiltless. If I could know more of them, what their names are, how they live, what they are waiting for, what their burdens are, then my emotion would have an object and might become sympathy. A word of command has made these silent figures our enemies. But a word of command might transform them into our friends. Come on, we have that second word of command. One of the two greatest commands we have, love God and love our neighbor. And Jesus doesn't say just love them as you might love other people. He said, hey, love them as I loved you. You know, Jesus, when he died for us, didn't agree with the way we were living, yet he still loved us. Jesus didn't agree with us because it says in Romans 5, 8, we were in sin, sinners when he died for us. It says in Romans 5, we were enemies when he died for us. He didn't agree with us, yet he still had compassion and died for us. Man, and like this passage, we're called to love our neighbor, even when we don't agree with them. And, and like this passage we just read, if you know nothing of your neighbor, or maybe some people even here in the sanctuary, that's exactly what should trouble you. Your life might be living along the same lines of us and them defined by our culture rather than God's commands. Come on, if you don't have sympathy and compassion, get some. How? Be slow to speak. Be quick to listen. Ask questions and care about the answers. Chances are you may not experience what they've experienced to elicit their response of maybe being happy or weeping, but you can still be with them in it. So come out of our trenches. The second is renew your mind and your mouth. Us versus them, this dichotomy, it's infiltrated, again, life and our culture. But we got to remember that Jesus lived a life of me for them and calls the church to a life of us for them. But subconsciously, and it's so easy, many of us have been taking our cues from commercials and the evening news. And here's a news flash. Pun, no pun intended. But on the news, if there's not division, they're going to create some. If there's no division in the media, they'll find a way to make some because that's how they make their money. But you know, our call as the church is the complete opposite. <laughs> Where there's division, we work towards unity. We work towards reconciliation through the blood of Jesus Christ. But it's evident that the church has adopted some of this perspective of us versus them. How do you know? Because we're judged by our words. It's out of the overflow of the mouth, or excuse me, overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Sometimes it's despairing defensiveness. Sometimes it's outright offensiveness. Expressed in emotion, guttural, sometimes hurtful words. If we've operated in this way in the, the season we've been in, it's time to repent and renew our minds. We talked about it three weeks ago when we started this series. You know, the, the line Donald Trump ran on again and again is, let's make America great again, but we need to show America grace again. That's the, that should be our calling as a church. Show grace with your words, with your life, with your conversation. Show America unity again. Look, we have to know the mountains that we're called to die on. We have to know the teachings we're called to cling to, the doctrine we don't let go of. But 
We also need to recognize the differences that we're called through the blood of Jesus Christ to find unity around, in spite of. And one truth we always cling to, though, is the gospel. If I could have the worship team come up, again, we're going to praise God because the gospel hasn't changed. The good news of Jesus Christ is still the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing can change the work that Jesus did on the cross. Nothing. That's great news. Nothing I can do can change that. Nothing you can do can change that. Nothing that the government does can change that. But the third thing we got to walk forward in is, is let's get back to proclaiming the gospel. Let's get back to proclaiming the gospel. We got to show as much effort in gospel proclamation as we do in political activism. So many posts about different candidates. How many posts about Jesus? It's not just about social media. But in your life, living the hope and unity that we find in the gospel. This election process gave us plenty of things to point to and say, hey, we're not about that. But let's start telling the world what we're about again. The hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ that goes nowhere. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Come on, God gave us, the church, this moment in 2016 to be light, to be peacemakers, and to be vehicles of reconciliation. Let's not take this moment and resent it. Let's not take this moment and sit passively back. And let's not take this moment and shake our fist. But come on, let's take this moment and show the world the hope we have. And let's express it through the unity that is found only in the blood of Jesus Christ. Our hope doesn't change. There's fear in our world. Let's meet it with hope. There's division in our world. Let's meet it with the unity that comes only through Jesus. But come on again, we're going to worship. You can stand where you're at tonight. We're going to go back in and Randy's going to lead us again. But let's renew our minds. Let's shift our focus. We worship the unchanging God on the throne. And again, what's great about Jesus and we worship him is because it's nothing the government can do that can change the work he did on the cross. I could have the worst week of my life and the grace is still available through the cross. I could have the best week of my life and I haven't added anything to his sacrifice. That's good news. Let's worship him tonight. Let's praise him tonight because he's worthy, because he's enthroned. And, and Jesus, it says in Philippians 2, he's now seated in the highest place. It says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to proclaim that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, we bend our knee tonight because you're King of kings and you're Lord of lords. And the government rests on your shoulder. And you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't matter what we did yesterday. It doesn't matter what we did today because your grace is here forever. God, so we worship you and we praise you and we lift your name up, Jesus, and we thank you for all you've done and all you did and all you're going to do. God, we worship you and praise you tonight.